This podcast was recorded on Sunday, February 18th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Something I didn't ask you that you would have liked me to ask you. Oh. Why I chose brown and orange. Why did you choose brown and orange? Retro 70s look. And the old NDP in the 70s had brown and orange. It's true. They did. They know. So this is a return to the waffle movement. Jagmeet Singh. I sat down with him for a one-on-one interview after the NDP's biannual policy convention, his first as party leader. In the spirit of his retro wardrobe choice, the party took a sharp left turn, endorsing capital B big government programs. Singh suggested expanding the healthcare system to include a pharmacare program, national dental care, and even possibly an eye care program. My friends, the time for Timid is over. Too many people have waited for too long. How will the NDP pay for it all? I'll have Singh's explanation a little later in the podcast. With Parliament Hill in view of the glass-walled venue here at the Shaw Center in Ottawa, speakers and delegates debated resolutions ranging from electric vehicles to pension theft and free menstrual products to decolonization. All right. Ani Buju, Migeze Beboya Dijnikaz, Tikaning Donjaba. I'm here uh, apparently to showcase my indigeneity. Tampons and pads should be treated just like toilet paper. I often wonder if men got periods, how different this conversation would be. Uh, I hate to point this out, but there are a lot of people who are not going to be able to afford an electric car. Um, I am opposed to this resolution because it should have happened a long time ago, thank you. I'm speaking against this motion because it does not go far enough. I want to um, also sort of just recognize uh, the NDP for having me as someone who is seen to be by some an agitator. Um, Others call me a troublemaker, but I think I'm a pretty good troublemaker. It's good trouble that we like to get into. Well, we like to get in good trouble ourselves. Jagmeet Singh didn't seem too pleased with all of my questions. Let's see what you think. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. In this episode, we ask what the future looks like for the NDP. Hello, my name is Guratan Singh. I'm uh, Jimmy Singh's brother. I think my brother needs to do and go forward on a mandate that he won his election on and continue that. I think a big part of it is, is, is breaking into new communities. It's showing that the NDP is fighting for issues that affects communities across Canada, looking at racialized communities, looking at the suburbs and looking at areas of growth and taking that message of, uh, of equity, of social justice and of progressive values and, and showing how it'll actually improve the lives of Canadians and all those other communities as well. Hi, I'm Bert Blunden. I'm from Mount Pearl, Newfoundland. I've been a member ever since I can remember what politics is about, which is too long for me to tell you. <laughs> a long time. 
over the years, obviously, we've had our up and downs. Uh, I'm hoping that over uh, over the coming few months uh, that we prepare ourselves for an election and hopefully increase our CETO, hopefully form government, uh, where we can have some real say and some real change. So my name is Maria Amon. I'm coming from Regina, Saskatchewan. What do you think the Jagmeet effect will be on the party? I think Jagmeet is going to attract so many new populations of voters, of supporters of the NDP. So I think he's inspiring a huge new wave of NDP supporters. So, Hi, I'm Paul Minema from the Saskatoon West uh, riding in Saskatchewan. There are always going to be folks that, that uh, think that we should be further left or we should be you know, maybe more centric to get power, whatever the case may be. But I think that generally we've always been on, on a good path. And I think what you see at this convention is the youngest delegates that we've ever had at this convention. We see the most diverse crowd that we've seen probably in most any political uh, convention. And I think it shows the direction that, that the party is taking is the direction that the folks want to see. Hi, my name is Chris Green. Uh, delegate from uh, Surrey South White Rock. I think the pipeline cannot go through. I would like the federal party to oppose it completely. I know that doesn't make uh, Alberta is not going to be happy with that. But uh, at the end of the day, as a British Columbian, I kind of feel it's uh, we own it's it's our coastline. And if the uh, Constitution says that uh, the federal government can say that uh, they can do that, then the Constitution needs to be changed. Oh, hi, I'm Ken Imhoff. <laughs> this is new to me, this uh, podcast business, so we'll see how this goes. You're from Saskatchewan? Yes, from Regina, representing the Regina Capel Riding Association, who our Member of Parliament is Andrew Shear. The Conservative leader. The Conservative leader. I think one thing that's uh, really important, like within Saskatchewan, of course, um, you know, there's going to be some debate about Jagmeet as the leader. And uh, my point of view as a president of the Riding Association is we'll, we'll be right in the face with our electorate on that. Because it's not a matter of, oh, geez, are we going to lose the election because of this or that or the other thing. It's what do we stand for? What does Canada stand for? What are the principles that are, we're talking about in this room here? And that's what we got to think about. We know, I know, I've, I know what's going on, what the undercurrent is. I'm not going to name it, but I think people can figure that out for themselves. And uh, as I say, Jag meets our leader and we're going to profile him as our leader. And we're going to ensure that, if, from Andrew Shear's point of view, is hold his feet to the fire. Results of the leadership review vote. The results are as follows 90.7% no, 9.2% yes. Hi, my name is Jagmeet Singh. I'm the leader of the NDP. You um, got a leadership review vote. On Saturday, I did. Ninety point seven percent of the delegates in the room said they were very happy you were their leader, and they did not want a leadership race. This is correct. Does it bother you that there are still about one hundred and fifty people in that room who wanted another leadership race? <laughs> no, it's totally cool. It's totally cool. There's got to be a little bit of disagreement. That's that's healthy. That means I have, I have more work to do. I can convince them in future dates by being even more amazing. Was there a number you had in your head? Uh, 
I don't know what I have a specific number. I kind of like walked into it with like not specific expectations and I was just really open to the universe and I was really open to whatever would happen. But I, I was happy when I heard the number. I got, you know, I smiled. I'm like, oh, it's, it's a great honor to be, to be supported by the members. I want to talk to you about your challenges and then I want to talk about your offering. Sure. Bad news first. Sure. Um, I talked to a number of the delegates who told me about some of the challenges that they see for you. Okay. And um, one of the comments uh, that seemed to be repeated to me from, especially delegates from Saskatchewan, was that they were worried. They embrace you as their leader and they are looking forward to going door knocking. But they acknowledge that there are some constituents that will have a hard time accepting a brown, sick, turbaned-wearing leader. Um, as it's a lot of things for people to accept all at once, huh? <laughs> How do you court individuals like that? Do you try to win them over or do you just say, I'm never going to reach these people and I'm going to focus on those that I can? I got a great approach because it's taught to me by my mom. And mom literally always taught me that we're all connected. So there's always a way to connect with every human being. There's a shared connection that we have. And then I always, in any con conversation, I try to find that, that link that we share as humans. And there's always something there that can bind us. And what I hope to connect with people on, which is the most important, is that I want to make people's lives better. I want to find out what the problems are and propose solutions that will improve people's lives and I feel like that's a pretty universal message like you can get through to anyone if you're like I'm here to defend you and your interest to make your lives better and to make the society more just I think that's such a universal message that it's going to get through to everyone a lot of this policy convention was about better is possible that's it big bold changes yes Sunday morning we saw the delegates adopt free tuition mm -hmm. something that you'd called for in the leadership race absolutely in your speech on Saturday you talked about a national pharmacare program a national dental care program you raised the idea of even vision care yes uh, you talked about the internet as a common good mm-hmm the party seems to be tacking left what's behind the big bold strategy well for me it's really about what are the the struggles that people are facing and people are facing these struggles. I think the pharmacare example, there was a really powerful study that came out just recently and it spoke to the anecdotal stories that I've been hearing of seniors saying they've been cutting their pills in half or skipping their medication. The study showed, it's a study by a number of universities across Canada, that 1.6 million Canadians have either not filled out their prescription entirely or skipped dosages because they couldn't afford the medication they need. So that's a real concern. And so that's driving me to say, listen, we need pharmacare now. When I talk to young people, and I look at my own experiences, I could not, like I literally could not have gone to law school if the tuition fees are what they are today. So if, when I went, I went to law school, it was a great school. At the time it was 8,000. It was expensive. It felt like it was expensive to me because it was double what I was paying for undergrad. But it still seemed like I could wrap my head around 8,000. I can't even imagine students that are paying 30,000. I couldn't have done it. And then I wouldn't have become a lawyer. I wouldn't have become a member of provincial parliament. And I wouldn't have become the leader of the party. Like all these things would not have happened. I can only imagine all the young people that are feeling this way, frustrated, feeling like they've got these dreams and they can't live out their dreams. So what's, what's guiding it isn't a desire to tack any direction. It's because people are, are struggling and are, and are worried and are uncertain about the future. And I want to bring some equality and justice to people, people's lives. 
you wouldn't have been able to spend that money because you personally wouldn't have felt uncomfortable taking on that debt load or a financial institution you don't think would have lent you that much money? I don't think, well, I didn't have th- three reasons. One is uh, my family was in a position where we were, we, I was the eldest and I needed to start working quickly and I needed to start earning income. And so I looked at, could I go to school and how much of a debt would I get out of it and how much of a return would I get on it? Would I be able to earn enough money to support my, my mom and dad and my brother? And the idea of, of one, I didn't think I, could, I would be able to get that much of a loan, but even if I could, it wouldn't make any sense to graduate with like over $100,000 debt if my family has no resources and no one's working and I'm the only one working. It just wouldn't make any sense. And so I would never have done that if it was that much of a debt. The idea of graduating with $24,000, $30,000 seemed to me with the professional salary of a lawyer, I could kind of wrap my head around it, still be able to pay the bills for my family and pay down the debt or the, of the loan. So I could see myself around that, but I could not imagine taking on over like a six-figure debt. So this might be a stupid question, but the things that we saw the delegates endorse, the things you spoke about on Saturday, are these things that are going to be part of the NDP platform in 2019? We haven't specifically laid out the platform is. Um, or it's going to be, but these are the values for sure that are going to inform when we talk about the platform. So these ideas of the theme around inequality and how we tackle inequality, absolutely, it's going to be a big plank of our of our offer. How we address and listen to, first of all, listen to the, the position or the problems that people are facing and then how we provide solutions to it. These are all kind of the themes that people have talked about, so these are all the elements of it. How we package that, I'm not sure, but these are all the, vi- the feelings and the vibes and the, and the values. So why aren't we looking beyond expanding to pharmacare and look to including dental care as a part of our universal healthcare system? And then further on to eye care. Together with true universal health care, we are all healthier, we are all stronger, and a more vibrant society, my friends. As you know, a number of Canadians are going to listen to this and think, well, how is he going to pay for all this? Mm-hmm. How are you going to pay for all this? I like how you said it once was the question for the people, and the second one was, was your question. Uh, well, one of the things we've actually costed out, we've looked at the costing around pharmacare, and in our budget submission this year, we've said with the CEO stock option mm-hmm. loophole and with specifically a capital gains inclusion on the ultra rich, that could pay for a pharmacare right now in this upcoming budget. So we've costed that. The other promises, it's fair, aren't, aren't promises as much as they are discussions about where we should be going as a society. And we haven't costed them out yet, but if we don't talk about you them- You mean tuition them, and dental care, for Exactly, example. yeah, tuition, dental care, looking at in, in internet connectivity as a public infrastructure. These are things that, this is where we should head as a society and we need to start talking about it first. So these are things we should start getting people on board and say, listen, shouldn't it be that our internet connectivity is something we look at the same way we look at public transit and, and ways that we connect with ourselves, connect with each other? And, and this is the beginning of saying, let's have that discussion and talk about like where we could go. What is that better as possible? What is that better? This is a part of what it is. They want you to believe that the government is the enemy and the cause of your problems and that taxes just take something away from you rather than giving something back to all of us. Something that struck me from your speech on Saturday was this idea that um, taxes are 
not something that you take from someone. It's something that uh, you give back to everyone. And in the past, at least your predecessor, Thomas Mulcair, was certainly, I cannot imagine him uh, verbalizing a message like that. The people around him used to tell us, well, you know, um, the public looks at New Democrats in a certain way, and we need to look like we're fiscally prudent so that the Canadians will trust us to have the nation's books. Are you at all worried about that? Uh, I believe that we need to start talking about the, what we contribute to building up a fair society as investments. When we, when we contribute back and use that to build a pharmacare, that's an investment, an investment in all of our health. When we look at public infrastructure that's owned by the public, these are investments that help us connect with one another and move around. So I really want to shift the t- discussion to how do we invest in each other and how do we invest in building each other up? So we need to increase our revenue so that we can pay for these things. So I'm open to the idea of making more investments and making those who can invest more. So I'm talking about uh, the ultra-rich, wealthy and powerful corporations, folks, uh, things like offshore tax havens. There's billions billions of dollars of investments that we're missing out on, on revenue that we're missing out on. If we closed uh, offshore tax havens, if we addressed increasing capital gains inclusion on those who are ultra wealthy and rich. We can actually look at increasing revenues and using these, instead of talking about taxes as something that take away from us, I'm saying, let's look at, at what we contribute as investments and let's look at increasing the contribu- contributions for those who can and use that towards building a better, a fair society for us all. And if the rich say, well, I don't want to live in this country, I'm going to move down south and Donald Trump's America where my tax rate has just dropped. <laughs> I think there's so much that we offer here in Canada. This It's such a beautiful place. There's so much that people benefit from because of our equal society. It's a safer place. It's a more vibrant place. And we can make it even safer, even more vibrant when we make those contributions. I want to ask you about the first and actually only intervention you made on the floor this weekend. It was a motion that I believe came from Quebec calling on the NDP uh, to recognize the grave um, historic error, I believe the way that uh, the resolution was framed, uh, that Quebec was not a signatory to the 1982 constitution, and that the party would welcome any serious effort to return uh, Quebec into the constitution. Yeah, I didn't ask my question, but go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I also wanted to add in that that the second part of that resolution, which is On so indigenous powerful. Rights. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say, what, what makes that, that resolution so powerful was the, it, it really speaks to, when I talked about throughout my campaign for leadership and as leader, I talked about building a more inclusive Canada. So an inclusive Canada is a Canada that's more equal. So that's why we need to tackle inequality. An inclusive Canada is one where it's free from discrimination. That's why I talked about the importance of tackling anti-black discrimination and racism and discrimination broadly, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. The Me Too movement is important because inequality as it impacts women, not just on pay equity levels, but the fact that the majority of women in Canada have faced some harassment. These are all uh, offensive areas where we're seeing inequality exacerbated. On the same, in the same way, our constitution should be a, a value espousing document that actually unites people. It brings people together. But the fact that Quebec and First Nations are excluded, it sends a message that that it's not inclusive. It's not bringing together. And so to truly build an inclusive country, our constitution should include 
all nations, all people, all territories, all provinces, and that's what's missing in our constitution. But are you saying that you, as Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, you would reopen the constitution in order to bring Quebec on side and recognize nation-to-nation relationships with indigenous communities? So the resolution doesn't say what the process would be, and I don't know what the no, process No, the resolution says you would welcome any serious effort. I'm right. wondering if you were going to lead that effort and not just welcome it. Right. So what I'm committing to is it's a value that I, I recognize that this is an injustice and it needs to be addressed. I don't know what... We'll look at the different solutions in terms of how we fix that problem, and we'll look at the solutions in terms of how we build a more inclusive document, what that process is and how that's done, we'll look at. But the value is what we want to focus in on, that it doesn't make sense that we have people excluded from our constitution. That's something that I want to say as a value I get. I know that that's unjust, and I want to do something about it. So you... You may or may not lead an effort, but you want people to know that this is something that bothers you. It, yeah, exactly. It bothers me. It's something that needs to be addressed. And then how we address it, you know, we'll, we'll work on fi- figuring out the solution on how we address it. You said, I'm going to quote yourself back to you. You sure. said, we need to have the courage to do this. Yes. Well, if you're saying you need to have the courage to do this, it doesn't sound like you're right now that you have the courage to do it. Uh, I'm just saying I don't have the process to do this or I don't have the, the vehicle to do this but I'm indicating my commitment to it. I'm committed to it. I don't know at this point what the process is and what the pathway is, but I'm committed that we must do it. So far... In this room right now, there are things that are happening which are completely undemocratic. Just a second. Be it further resolved that the NDP denounces Canada's silence on fundamental issues of human rights in Israel and Palestine, as well as Canada's voting pattern on Israel and Palestine at the United Nations, and condemns illegal settlements and the blockade of Gaza. I just want to point out that through all our, all, all our efforts on this resolution, we have been blocked every step of the way with every procedural hoop that's been put in our way. The proposed language, part of the instructions, do not address the concerns of delegates about the crimes of Israeli apartheid. Sitting here taking pictures of me, they videotape me outside the door, point of privilege. A lot of people don't want to talk about the issues because these guys are making it unsafe for them to participate. I think it's such a sensitive issue because you don't want to alienate either party. And I think that I'm proud of the NDP for being a party that allows for discussion and for differences of opinion. So I would have liked to have seen the debate on the floor. I am a Palestinian Canadian. We have not heard a single voice by anyone affected by this resolution. That is a point of personal privilege on the point of equity. And I will be filing an equity report based on my treatment throughout this convention, which has been completely disrespectful. Okay. And I would like to speak to the referral in particular. We heard the member from Toronto Centre at the beginning speak. Sorry, we already... I'm, I'm sorry. I did check see who wanted to speak on the motion to refer we've already started sorry sorry 
Just a second, please. We've already started the vote, so I can't, I, just a second, please, because then, I understand. I'm a Palestinian woman also. Nikki Ashton, Member of Parliament for Churchill, Kiwait, Nogeski. 37 riding associations supported a Justice for Palestine resolution that was buried instead of one. The Party Central doesn't want to, uh, doesn't care about the, uh, what members want. It cares for, first and foremost about what would make it look better. We're not counting on Mr. Singh to, to champion Palestinian rights. We're just saying let members decide. And when members decide, accept that. You don't have to agree with it, but you need to accept it. I need to ask you about the Middle East. Sure. I don't know if you were in the hall on Saturday when uh, delegates spent about an hour discussing motions around discussing a motion on Israel and Palestine. But there was a lot of anger um, in the room because the party had prevented a motion that had about uh, almost 30 writing associations behind it. The youth wing was behind it um, that uh, I think most be seen as a very pro-Palestinian resolution that the party squashed all the way down the list. And in fact, there were some 12 resolutions that you could see were pro-Palestinian that were pushed off the priority list by um, sort of the, the party uh, backroom boys, as we used to say. Where do you stand on that? I mean, if that resolution had come to the floor, how would you have voted? Well, I can speak to my values around, around issues uh, of that impact the, the region, particular to Palestine. I can read it Israel. for you if you want me to, as well, a refresher. Well, I'll tell you my values, and then we'll talk about the, the resolution. The, the resolution, and this is decided by members. Members will figure out you know, way the, what happens with each, with each resolution. In terms of why people, I think why tensions are high, is because there's, it's, it's a difficult issue in terms of there's recent uh, decisions made by the U.S., that have inflamed tensions by by naming Jerusalem the capital. It's it's further divided uh, folks in the region. It's created conflict. It's increased tension, so people are upset. There's been recent violence that's occurred in Gaza, which has again exacerbated the tensions. And this is all going back to the Trump administration's decision to kind of increase and heighten the emotion by making a decision that was div dis divisive that I condemned as divisive, and our government's been very tepid in responding to this issue. They've not called out the the divisiveness of that type of decision. They've not called out the Trump administration, the U.S. administration on doing that. I think that's something that's that stoked people, uh, stoked the emotions, made people more uh, upset because they're seeing right now there's there's this concern. Uh, my values are very clear. I've said I'm a, I'm a two. I believe in the two-state solution. Uh, I I condemn like the international community the illegal settlements and how they frustrate lives day to day, but also frustrate the, the, the peace process. I've condemned any government in the world that has human rights violations. So anytime, if it's the Israeli government makes a decision around the use of military and it violates international law or it violates human rights, I'm critical of it. Uh, I believe in Israel's right to self-determination and be a country. I believe in the Palestinian people's right to have a country, I believe in the fact that all people should be able to live with peace, dignity, and security. So these are my values, um, and the resolutions are something that members will decide. Do you support the boycott, divestment, sanction movement? Uh, what I've said is that people should have the, the freedom of thought and expression, 
to criticize a country uh, in terms of its governance policies, its you know military and military actions. That's the right of people to criticize governments. Uh, I think it should never be conflated with anti-Semitism, which I denounce and I abhor, and it's something that should not be allowed to grow in any fashion. But the criticism of a government's decisions or its policies or its military action is something that people can criticize and then use whatever vehicle they want to criticize it, whatever that may be. So one of the more controversial parts of that resolution was this uh, line that dealt with um, boycotts from products that come from the settlements, um, the illegally occupied settlements. Are you, like, I feel like you're kind of talking around the topic. So uh, is what you're saying basically that you uh, are supportive of the idea of sanctions, but you are, you don't like that that discussion has been phrased in anti-Semitic terms? Well, I think it's fair to say that, that there is there, anti-Semitism is ex- exists in our society, and we have to be very vigilant to to denounce it wherever it occurs. Uh, I think it's important that that that's separated from people having the legitimate right to make a decision about what they want to do to criticize a government's policies or decisions. And people should have that right. Uh, that right should but exist. But you don't support the BDS movement personally. Uh, I've not. I've not made a commitment to say that's a part of our policy or not a part of our policy. But I commit to people's right to make that decision themselves in however they want to engage in their whether it's the way they buy products or whether it's the way they want to to write or express their thoughts. People should be able to express their concerns with any country and a country's policies or decisions. That's up to people. Okay. So you're comfortable where the party has gone, but you would not have been comfortable if these 12 resolutions had passed. Again, it's the memberships that the, the membership decides. No, but you're resolution. the leader. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's I have hard my... when the leader has to go out and defend policies he may not agree with. <laughs> well, <laughs> the membership has a right to make a decision about what they want in terms of policies. I, as a leader, have uh, my values, and I can tell you what those are. At the end of the day, uh, I, I'm going to proceed with. The decisions of the membership with respect to policy and my values, and that's how we move forward. Let me ask you about pipelines because sure. we don't have that much time. Sure. Um, I was listening to an interview you gave on the CBC where Chris Hall asked you if you had spoken to either John Horgan or Rachel Notley about this issue, and you said you had not spoken to either of them. Is that still the case? Still the case. Um, why haven't you? I mean, you're the leader of the federal party. Why would you not reach out to your provincial counterparts and try to mend this family feud? Well, because it's actually not a feud that needs to be mended between the two provinces. BC and Premier Horgan are doing exactly, he's doing exactly what he promised to do. He said he was going to defend the environment and defend the coast. And that's what's in the best interest of the people of of the province. Premier Notley is doing exactly what she promised to do. She said that she was going to defend the economic interest of, of Alberta, you know, defend the people of Alberta, she put forward a, a strong environmental policy, and which is one of the best of the country, and has said that these are my values. My concern isn't with either of them. The Prime Minister acknowledged and criticized openly, like everyone else, that the environmental assessment process under, under Harper was a sham, was not something that people had confidence in environmental concerns were not addressed. No one had confidence that the process would actually address any legitimate concerns that were raised. In fact, something as vital as addressing the unique element of a oil spill with diluted bitumen, evidence wasn't even allowed to be raised at the hearing. 
So he promised to bring in a renewed process, a modernized process based on science, not based on a minister's approval, but based on independent scientific reasoning. He didn't do that. He used the old process, which was a sham. My my argument or my concern is with the prime minister for failing to fall through on that promise and not have a process. But Mr. Singh, if you were prime minister, what would you do? I would have an up-to-date, modernized environmental assessment process immediately. So you would send it through this new yes. assessment process? Yes. But Catherine McKenna uh, announced last week. Well, I don't know if, if their process is the right process, but it's got to be a modernized process that's science-based and that's independent. I already know that the process that the Minister of Environment has proposed The is Impact su- Assessment Agency. Exactly. is subject to minister approval. Right, as so was the takes, old process. Exactly, and that's the exact problem. A process should not be you would, a political decision. It should be an independent, evidence-based, scientific decision. So you don't think politicians should have a veto or approval over resource projects? Resource, resource process, the environmental assessment, the impact assessment should be done uh, independent of ministerial input. So well, it's we have still ass- being done independent. It's just that at the end of the day, the government says yay or nay. The, the minister has a decision-making process with respect to the outcome of the, of the assessment. At the end of the day, we can decide as a nation what we want to do, but the assessment should be, this is the impact, it's going to hurt the environment, it's going to do this. And, and that's the- still happening. Just help me understand what your point of view is. Sure. That's still happening. What the, gov- the Liberal government has announced is that they're keeping, at the end of the day, the government, which is elected by the people of this country, will decide whether or not these projects should go through. So are you saying that you don't think the government should be allowed to overrule the experts who decide at the uh, now newly uh, impact assessment agency what the recommendation should be? The recommendation should come from an independent um, process. And then once that recommendation is received, the government can then, you know, the government has the right to make decisions. But the, the assessment process should be free from any political interference. And then this, the decision to to engage in or to do something with whatever information you receive, whatever the opinion you receive, should not have been subject to political will. So the decision that this is going to hurt the environment and we don't approve of it, then the government can take that and do it, what, it, what it wants to do with so that. So basically what you're I'm suggesting concerned. the same thing as the liberals. What I'm concerned is that the even the assessment process itself it doesn't have the independence that it requires. The, the assessment process itself should be an independent assessment of whether it's going to hurt the environment or not. But you're raising I, this as a risk because we don't know yet what the new process is going to result in because right, nothing's gone through it. Right. Well, I don't know the details around the process either. These are just some of the things that I flagged as being concerns. And I'm concerned with a process that has some indication that it's not independent, that it's not based on science alone, that it's not based on the evidence. Would Jagmeet Singh, as Prime Minister ever find himself in a position where you think you would approve pipelines? Uh, I've said before that I I could look at supporting energy projects that satisfy three criteria for me. And that I've I've had to rely on these three criteria because there hasn't been a modernized environmental process. The three criteria, one, does it achieve our climate change goals in terms of reducing emissions? Two, is it something that creates local opportunities for work? And three, does it respect the values and principles of UNDRIP? Those are the three criteria that I could base a decision on. Okay, I have two easy questions for you. 2019, you've had four by-elections. In every case, your vote result has been lower than 2015. Do you think 2019 is a real possibility of forming government? Yes. Second question. We've talked to a number of people here in the room. 
um, not in this specific room, but at convention, who talked about your social media strategy. Uh, they feel like you have won them over. What is your social media strategy? Uh, to be relatable, to connect with people, to be fun. And how's that working out for you? Pretty good. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, I'm Sabrina from British Columbia. Hi, I'm Harpinder from Brampton. What brings you here? Uh, Jagmeet Singh. I started with his campaign this summer. Yeah. Um, same with me. Um, I came because of Jagmeet Singh, and I came to see what like what is like um, in all this po political business. Were you guys interested in this political business before Jagmeet? Kinda, not really. He just influenced us a little bit more. Like, I would have never thought that brown people could do so much, and especially a Punjabi person. I'm really proud of him. He's very big on social media. He's a very big Snapchatter. Like, that's how I actually, like, got through him and got to volunteer. So I think, like, he... Through Snapchat? Yeah. Could you explain that? So basically, he was making a Snapchat or whatever, and it said, like, he, it was cycle life, hashtag cycle life, whatever. And then he's like cycle life's a movement or whatever i was like yo this guy's so cool like what the hell and then um he's and then one day he was like if you guys want to volunteer for my campaign swipe up because uh, snapchat has a swipe up link button link option or whatever and i just swiped up and i signed up legit would you guys say his social media is fuego yeah it's super fuego And that's our show from the floor of the NDP convention in Ottawa. If you enjoyed this episode on iTunes, please leave us a review or drop us a line. You can always send me your thoughts and your story ideas through Facebook or Twitter. At Althea Raj, A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. A big, big thank you this week to producer Zian Lum and technical producer Stephanie Werner. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. See you later. <laughs>